You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 10th of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Tom Edwards. On today's programme, Israel answers rockets fired by Iran into the Golan Heights with its biggest assault so far on Iranian infrastructure inside Syria. My guests today, Daniela Peled and Brian Klaas, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the upcoming meeting between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, which will take place in Singapore the election of a 92-year-old Prime Minister in Malaysia. We discuss the pitfalls and ponder the benefits of having an older leader. And... This means it's Eurovision time. Our guests discuss their favourite entries. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Tom Edwards. A warm welcome indeed to Midori House. My guests today are Daniela Pelled, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and Brian Class, a Fellow in Comparative Politics at the London School of Economics. A warm welcome both. Let's start the show discussing the latest on the conflict between Iran and Israel. As a response to an Israeli rocket attack on the occupied Golan Heights, Israel struck Iran's military infrastructure in Syria, its biggest assault there since the start of the civil war in the country. Um, Daniela Pella, let me come to you first of all, and I guess we sort of need to go back here and, and remind us about the occupation of the Golan Heights and why Iran will have made these rocket attacks that Israel has now responded to. Well, I guess we have to go back to the, uh, the Syrian civil war and the fact that Hezbollah, the Iranian proxy, has been a very active participant. Uh, and as the Syrian war draws, uh, perhaps inevitably, to its very bloody conclusion, Israel has been looking at the, the state of play and made quite clear it will not accept uh, an Iranian base on its borders. As simple as that. That's its... Uh, that's its main interest, and that's its uh, its red line. Um, this was a clash waiting to happen. It's been very, very widely predicted by all the Israelis I've, I've been talking to recently. The question was, when and how would Iran strike back? And this is a direct. This was a direct attack by Iran uh, against Israel, which again is another red line. Uh, Israel responded in suitably dramatic style and is believed to have destroyed a great deal of their equipment, their sort of forward operating base uh, in, in that part of Syria. So Israel today, quite jubilant, uh, celebrating a military success. The country is very much behind uh, Netanyahu on this particular issue. Um, but the dangers are enormous, truly enormous. Mm. Uh, and we'll talk more about those dangers in a moment. Um, but Brian, let me just bring you in here, particularly if we talk, it's hard to talk about this without the context of Trump quitting the Iran deal, of course. Do you think there is an obvious line between that announcement and then this this narrative, both Iranian and Israeli policy, as regards the their, their counterparts here? 
I think the link is that there's increased scope for volatility as a result of the scuppering of the Iran deal, uh, as Trump announced recently. But I, I think that also this is a retaliation for an attack that happened before the announcement. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's exactly because of the Iran deal, but I do think that we should expect to see more volatility in the region because Israel got its way. Uh, Iran feels that it has less to lose in provoking, uh, you know, in provoking the West and in provoking Israel. And, and as a result of that, I think that we will see as the sort of solidification of the contours of the Syria civil war uh, comes to a close that, you know, people are trying to figure out what the Middle East looks like. And it's not, if, you know, from 2011 to 2017 or so, it was very fluid. It's starting to take shape. And that's where, you know, there is more scope for actual real engagement and intervention because, you know, it's one thing when the civil war is sort of ebbing and flowing. It's another thing when you're like, okay, Iran is now going to have a foothold right next to Israel and that's not going to change. There's not going to be a, a, a sort of a focal moment. So I think that is is going to be the narrative for the coming six months is the, the question of how much more volatility we're going to see. Uh, well, Daniel, let me come back to you on that point precisely as Brian describes it. As we get a more sort of concrete landscape, is there a risk that rather than all of these sort of proxy conflicts, we edge towards a direct confrontation? Well, I mean, it's pretty direct between Iran and Israel now, but they've never been in a sort of formal state of war. That is that more likely? I mean, and maybe again, remind us in terms of the context here of exactly how dangerous that could be. Well, Given the current uh, leadership on, on both sides, I think that's also important to note. For Benjamin Netanyahu, Iran has been the top of his priority for almost decades now. He's seen this as the, the most serious strategic threat and uh, with some good reason as well, especially as other actors in the region have been taken out of play. So he sees this as an existential war. He, as you said, he was very much uh, behind the, the lobbying for Trump to withdraw from the, the deal. The problem is there is no clear alternative beyond belligerence. Uh, he seems very set on, his, on this path. And there are very few voices in Israel and Israeli domestic politics uh, urging caution. I mean, Netanyahu's line is that you cannot uh, negotiate with terrorists. Iran is a terrorist state, QED only military force. And it's fond, It's a strategy that the Israelis are, uh, are fond of. And when they are successful, as they seem to have been here in the short term, I think that creates a dynamic that is quite hard to stop. I and mean, we've seen these, we've seen, been at this point before over Syria, where you have two countries perhaps spilling from proxy war into direct confrontation. If you recall when um, when the Russians shot down a Turkish fighter pilot. And for a while, we were all on the edge of our seats thinking, right, this is it, this is it. But both countries, it was in both countries' in, uh, interest to step down, to draw back. The question is now with Israel and Iran, is it really, do they see it as in their interest now mm. to, to calm the situation? Well, and Brian, let me ask you again, looking from the sort of US perspective, you know, is there an issue that whether you look to John Bolton or Pompeo or Trump himself, and I think in the, in the latter case, certainly we may have a guess at this answer. There's a lack of understanding of these prevailing circumstances, this history, the complexity, all of these uh, complex proxy uh, relationships. Does that risk, you know, rash judgments, rash statements? We've seen Trump, uh, you know, align himself very closely with Netanyahu and be very transparent about that. Is there a risk? That there's a, a lack of understanding from him and his inner circle. 
Yes, and it's the worst possible arrangement in a sense because you have the person who's the commander-in-chief and President Trump who does not understand the region, does not read history books, does not take an interest in the de- in details of anything related to geopolitics. And he's surrounded himself by people who do understand, understand all of the contours, all of the history pretty well, but are extreme hawks. Hmm. And, and with Bolton and Pompeo both, they understand what they're doing, but they, they are for a hardline military stance towards Iran. Now – that might bear some fruit. I mean, you know, I, I'm no friend of Iran. I think it's a, a terrible state, and I think its regime is brutal and terrible. But that being said, there's a question of, you know, John Bolton has, has penned several op-eds saying we should bomb Iran. And, and now you, you can start to see how this could happen if the escalation continues, if there continues to be this, this sort of proxy battle getting toward, closer towards a hot conflict itself. If Israel feels threatened, I think the U.S. will have its back. And, and as a result of that, um, you know, there is a real scope for escalation in, in a way that could spiral out of control. And the other thing is to see this through the prism of domestic politics in Israel, Iran, and the United States. I mean, all of these states are also trying to, to project an image of power to their domestic audiences. And that also could be dangerous. Well, Daniel, let me ask you, in a sense, in the same way as it's difficult to read Trump's intentions, if we look to Tehran, it's difficult. But nevertheless, what, what would you, what would your best guess as to what Iranian reaction to the Israeli attack in Syria might be? They've been reasonably quiet thus far. Clearly, with, you know, a ratcheting up of sanctions from various sources, we saw uh, in extraordinary scenes of parliament of, you know, stars and stripes flags being burned by MPs and all the rest of it. How do they how do they manage this, particularly with an, an eye, as Brian points out there, on their domestic consideration? Well, rhetoric for domestic audiences is no surprise. Burning flags and the usual optics, I think that was all quite predictable. But it is all this is all enmeshed with the the Iranian the the nuclear deal. Uh, I'm surprised, really, from. I'm no businesswoman, but uh, from a business sense, when you make a deal, the art of the deal that Trump is supposed to know so well, you give people an alternative and you provide an alternative route. Uh, the Iran deal wasn't perfect, but no one came up with a, a more plausible alternative. Uh, but at the same time, Iran doesn't want to be um, a rogue state in the same sense as, as, as North Korea is, and we'll talk about that, I, I think, in a minute. But it wants to be part of the family of nations and it wants to be... Uh, a state actor rather than just some renegade. So I think mm. there is definite, um, there is rational th- thought there, perhaps in a way that we're not seeing so much from uh, from the White House, certainly in terms of Israeli domestic pro- uh, uh, public opinion. Uh, Netanyahu is embroiled in, in multiple corruption scandals. He is not popular as a person, but as a leader in a time of crisis, a genuine crisis such as this, perhaps slightly manufactured, he really, his popular, popularity is soaring. And there is nobody making uh, another case, uh, not beating the drum for war. Uh, just that mention sort of the economics of this. Brian, perhaps a final question on this. In terms of the US view on Iran, why are there so few, vo- well, it's probably a stupid question in a way, there are so few voices stateside about Iran as potential economic powerhouse for the region. You know, a stable, a successful Iran could reorder many of the complexities of Middle Eastern politics. But that's obviously not a narrative <laughs> that you hardly ever hear from anybody, certainly on Capitol Hill. Why is that? 
Well, I think it's because it's basically the wrong side for the U.S., right? I mean, in, in, in a war between, you know, for regional influence between the Saudis and the Iranians, the U.S. has firmly been in the Saudi camp. Um, and so weakening Iran has long been a goal of U.S. foreign policy. And, and a subtext to a lot of U.S. foreign policy in the region is regime change in Iran. Obviously, a lot of people prefer the idea that that happens through revolution rather than through or some sort of uprising rather than uh, military force. But, you know, there's still a lot of hawks in, in Washington who want the end goal of this to be, you know, Iran has a different government. Um, that brings a whole host of volatility as well. I mean, I think it would be a good thing. I think the, the, the regime is tyrannical, but, you know, you, you can't just sort of think, oh, let's just have regime change and everything will be fine. I mean, we, we, we've learned that lesson very clearly. So to me, I think there's that dimension. There's also the question, though, that's much more pressing, which is for companies like Boeing and Airbus, they stand to lose, you know, 20 to $25 billion in contracts. There's also the question of secondary sanctions where European companies might actually get hit by American sanctions, which really hits, you know, American allies more, more than Iran. So there, there are serious considerations. I think this is where, you know, the point that Daniela was making was so, so apt is that you have to have a strategy. You know, you, you can say the deal is bad. But you have to provide a better option. And, and what's not been articulated by the White House is what happens if the deal collapses and Iran says, you know what, we're going to go back to enriching uranium tomorrow and we're going to build a bomb as soon as we can. And, and that's exactly what the deal was aiming to prevent. We're in a situation where that has suddenly become significantly more likely, even if there's still a lot of interest in Iran in maintaining the deal through Europe and, and trying to, you know, as you said, be, be part of the Club of Nations. And a quite a striking contrast, I guess, between events in this region and that on the uh, Korean peninsula. Let's head there now. Three American detainees were released, uh, welcomed by Donald Trump at the Andrews Air Force Base near Washington. Trump also announced on social media, of course, today that his meeting with Kim will happen on the 12th of June in Singapore. We will both try to make it a very special moment for world peace! Exclamation mark, Trump announced. Daniela Peled, will it be that? I think it will be quite a special dramatic moment and it will look very good and it will look very dramatic and the the appearances will be impressive. However, and it's a very big however, uh, I, I don't think there's any question that Trump's uh, attempt to present this as a unique opportunity and something that he has personally crafted really, really washes. There have been uh, prisoner releases before. It's not that unusual. Um, the um, these meetings and the meeting uh, meetings with, with the South Koreans it, it is very significant. However, when you get beyond these gestures and, and the visuals of it, what is actually on the table? The American line is they want all nuclear work stopped, finished, the end of all their uh, of and all their plans. North Koreans, as I understand it, say, well, we're going to suspend work on one particular uh, research facility. That's a huge gap. Uh, in expectations and um one can't really blame the north koreans for not saying oh okay all right let's be friends we'll stop all that nuclear business because other countries that have lost their nuclear capability or their wmd capability we can look at libya for instance things haven't really gone well for the leaders there so what exactly is uh, is on the table to be discussed and how much common ground there will be is not clear at all uh, it's interesting, though, I suppose, nevertheless, Brian, the fact, you know, no sitting US president has met with a North Korean leader, and we expect this meeting still to happen in, in Singapore next next month. To your earlier point about the necessity of a strategy, it seems on foreign policy terms, Trump doesn't really have one. But if he gets wins, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of 
go for a hypothetical away from, I think, <laughs> the very fair point Stanley made. Let's call this a success thus far. If it comes, even if in the absence of a strategy, does that matter? Yes, and it does. And I, I think for Trump's domestic audience, he's already gotten a win. And that's where, you know, he, he is a he is smart when it comes to appearances and victories. If you talk to Trump supporters, they say, how could you possibly criticize President Trump? Look at all the good he's doing in North Korea. Now, an objective assessment of what's happened so far is that a longstanding goal of the North Korean regime through, the, you know, Kim Jong-un's dad and his grandfather is to be seen one-on-one as equals with the U.S. president. It's been the, the goal of every North Korean president for decades. Trump is giving it to him. So this is a win for Kim Jong-un. It's not, it's with, with absolutely no real concessions for it. Keep in mind these, these releases, I mean, they're great. It's, it's wonderful that three American citizens have come home. They were detained while Trump was in office during negotiations. So effectively, Kim Jong-un gave himself bargaining chips by detaining American citizens. Trump praised him for that. In some ways, it creates this perverse incentive that basically says, you know, we'll be happy if you release prisoners that you kidnap. Um, you know, that's that's not good for, for American citizens traveling abroad. So uh, my, my real problem with this is that we have this de- declaration of victory for something that every U.S. president could have done, but made a strategic calculation not to do because they decided we don't want to legitimize Kim Jong-un and we don't believe he's serious about real concessions. And I, I think the real problem here is that any de- denuclearization that would be serious would come at a cost that the American security establishment simply cannot live with. Things like getting rid of all American troops in South Korea, um, you know, long-term guarantees to have no intervention in, in North Korea, um, and, and probably ceding much of the region to China even more. There, there's, there's so many various aspects of this where the devil is in the details. Kim Jong-un, you know, you know he, he wants to be seen as this global leader. Um, I think he's doing that. Trump is helping him. But we can't forget that, that the Kim dynasty has pledged denuclearization or an abandonment of its nuclear program multiple times it came to fruition, not at all. Um, and so declaring victory before the starting gun has even really been fired, I think, is very stupid. Uh, indeed. Uh, just briefly, Daniela, what of Singapore? Because there have been a lot of chat about where this meeting might take and there were limitations, for example, on just the actual distance that North Korea could travel with its aircraft. Um, Singapore's hosted some tricky diplomatic engagements before in 2015. China and Taiwan held talks there. Not quite sure how that's pla- <laughs> how that's all going. Um, is it... It had to happen somewhere. Well, it's as close to neutral territory uh, as possible, and I think they're seen as fairly fair uh, interlocutors. I mean, this is a, this is a this is just a, a a venue, really, rather than something in a uh, any long term process, which I think, as we possibly agree, any long term process right now is unlikely. There we go. Uh, you're listening to Midori House with me, Tom Edwards, with Daniela Pellet and with Brian Class. Coming up next, some superannuated politicians and what our guests think of Eurovision. I cannot wait. Monocle has bureau around the world in Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore, London, Toronto and New York City. In Tokyo, our bureau chief is Fiona Wilson. It's such a big city, but I think also it's just one of these very layered cities. Most weeks, there's something new to keep us interested. You know, either it's a new development or a you know really interesting new building, a new fashion brand. There's something about Tokyo. Once you're here and you live here, it gets more and more interesting. Hear from Monocle's editors and correspondents on the stories that matter and the places that matter every day on Monocle 24.
still with me are Daniela Pellet and Brian Klaas on this edition of Midori House. Now, this morning, recently elected 92-year-old Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad announced, yes, yes, I am still alive. He's the world's oldest leader, 21 years older than President Donald Trump, twice the age of Canadian PM Justin Trudeau. With that in mind, I feel it's the right time to ask both of you, what are the pitfalls and maybe the advantages of being a superannuated uh, leader. Brian Klaas, to you, first of all, nothing trumps wisdom, right? Or right or wrong? Uh, I think that's true to a point, <laughs> as long as they're sharp as attack mentally, um, which I, I think sometimes is not the case. Um, but, I mean, there is an interesting uh, parallel I saw here with, with some of the research that I've done in Tunisia, where the I believe the second oldest uh, leader is, is in power, uh, President Esebsi, who I think is either 92 or 91. And, and it was interesting because they he was sort of a consensus candidate because he was old enough to predate the uh, dictator's regime of Ben Ali. So it was like they, fu- they wanted to find someone who was not tainted by this, so they had to you know reach back into the past and find this consensus candidate. So in that, in that situation, age was a, a very big virtue. Um, but I also think, you know, we're heading this way in some countries like the United States where names being dropped out for uh, 2020 include Vice President Biden, uh, who, who will be in his late 70s, uh, Bernie Sanders, who I think is approaching 80. Trump will be in his late 70s if he were to, and I think he'll crack 80 if he um, were to win another term. So, um there doesn't seem to be any headwinds against older leaders, um, but but I, I do think that there is a question about sort of the demands of the job. Can a 92-year-old keep a grueling pace of what what should be uh, one of the hardest jobs, if not the hardest job in the country? Well, he suggested he might only do a couple of years and then sort of hand on someone else. Uh, and some of the suggestions include Anwar Ibrahim, who I think is still in prison currently, which has its own set of complications. But just to that point, uh, actually, that Brian makes that, Daniela, what does this say about whether it's democracies or just countries generally, is it nostalgia? Is it a damning indictment of the political classes today that we're having to look for, you know, non-Nigerians to be the next thing politically, the next big hope? The next big thing. Well, I think that the danger with this, and there are obvious advantages to being, you know, a, a veteran of politics and have seen it all before and not be... Uh, spurred by this sort of youthful intensity of making your name and making rash decisions and going to war and and so on. So that is an advantage. But I think the problem with this is that it becomes so extreme and you have a a club of nonagenarian leaders and that becomes the major aspect of interest. It's like those TV TV programmes you have, 100-year-old drivers or whatever. It's not... uh, It overtakes the actual focus... um, on what they're doing and I think they also make have to make such efforts to show that they are sprightly. I recall Shimon Peres, who was a again a very ancient uh, president of Israel and make a real uh, point of just walking everywhere walking and climbing the stairs you know look at me I'm up my memory is fine I'm still here uh, I'm alive yes yes I am alive. Um, and Brian, it struck me when you mentioned that uh, idea about going back to a candidate that predates contemporary political disputes. And I wonder, certainly if we look at Malaysia, of course, he was the he's the seventh leader, I think, and the fourth. And if you go back to that era, Malaysia was in full Asian tiger mode, uh, going places in the 80s and 90s, lots of foreign investment, big sort of economic boom. But at the time, he was a tough guy. He was a strong man. He was an authoritarian. Is there a risk that kind of political nostalgia can prompt electorates to make genuinely bad decisions. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think also, you know, political socialization happens not just for voters and for citizens. It also happens for politicians. And I mean, if you get used to a certain way of doing things, uh, I think your instincts start to follow the way that you used to do things. So there is a risk, even if somebody brands themselves, if, you know, if the country has made a transformation from authoritarianism towards a, a more robust democracy, uh, that's great. But if the person themselves is sort of been acclimated to behaving in ways that are, you know, violating democratic norms and just getting their way whenever they want it, that person can be very dangerous in a democracy. So you can end up electing a leader who's willing to roll back the clock, uh, so to speak, mm. not just uh, for, for their nostalgia, but also for a political system that, that used to be, uh, shall we say, less modern. Indeed. And I can't think of that many people who enter their 90s and become less stubborn or less set in their ways, <laughs> unless anyone has any obvious examples. Um, what would be a solution, Daniela? Should we have... Uh, we have minimum and maximum terms served in office. Should we have minimum and maximum ages for candidates or for elected uh, officials? Is think, that a way to go? I think that's a legal minefield. I mean, perhaps, you know, Britain with Brexit, perhaps they could break away and uh, and put in those sorts, of, uh, those sorts of measures. But I don't think that's possible. I don't think that's possible. I think a good compromise is to have the head of state can be pretty elderly, pretty twinkly, pretty yeah, our glorious queen, I say that with irony, is 90 a million. So I think heads of state, great... They play a, a mostly uh, uh, a mostly ceremonial role, mm. but perhaps a little bit more youth. Although really, Trump's age is not the most concerning thing about him. I think we can agree. Mm. But then, what if he went away for fifteen years and came back? <laughs> I don't know what. I will say. I will say by the way that Tunisia during its uh, transition period there was an attempt to create an age limit specifically targeted for President <laughs> right. Decepci. I think it was something like you cannot be more than 87 years old and he was turning 88. So there have been people who play with this for, for shall we say, not the most pure of reasons. Indeed, and we must always be alive to those risks. Uh, now, a change of tone and pace. This Saturday, the 63rd Eurovision Song Contest will take place in Lisbon for the first time. No age limits on entrance, as I understand it. Among the favourites to win this year are Israel, them again, and Cyprus. Apparently, the winner from last year's show is not a big fan of the Israeli entry. Uh, we heard a little clip of it at the top. Singer Netta imitates chicken sounds. It's the only way to describe it. Uh, he wasn't charmed by the quirky chicken dance, as he described it. Um, Daniela Pellet, does she have a chance for Israel? And does anyone care? People care so much. It's really quite hard to put into words how big a deal this is for Israel. Israel's soft power is not uh, massive. I mean, they had that old the hoary chestnut of, oh, we're making the desert bloom, and no one really buys that anymore. They have the high-tech miracle. That's not very sexy and not very personable either. Now, Israel wins the Eurovision, especially at a time like this with all this conflict. Not only does it make Israel part of Europe, theoretically, and not the Middle East. It's also a massive, massive, massive cultural win. Mm. It's a big deal for people in Israel. They have won a few times before, I think in the 70s, with a wonderfully titled Abani B, Abani Be, uh, the wonderful nonsense song. There was Hallelujah as well. And Dana International also won last time, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, and is still a celebrity in Israel. Um, Brian Klaas, what are your views on Eurovision from across that from across that large body of water that separates yeah. you from Europe? Is this, is it a sort of a strange curiosity, or is there a sort of an intriguing soft power dynamic, as Daniel has described, that actually yeah. makes this maybe more geopolitically relevant? Than I, th I think it's, it's a very interesting thing. I, I had to say that you know when I I had a, a Polish flatmate um, back when I was a student when I first moved over to the UK. 
who was just absolutely stunned that I'd never heard of it. I, I, but I've, Americans have no idea this thing exists for the most part. Um, and then you watch it and you're like, this is really weird. <laughs> you know, but it's also like a wonderful thing about Europe that there is this, this sort of cultural moment where all these different countries come together. Of course, there are geopolitical spats. There are, you know, intrigues about who's voting with who and all this. But but at the end of the day, I think one of the things that's most important about it is you have a sense of European identity that's shared with this one moment every year, uh, in which shared there's... with uh, Israel and Azerbaijan. <laughs> well, yes, but 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 also, I mean, it is it is fundamentally a European thing, right? I mean, the Americans are, are certainly oblivious to it. So, <laughs> but having said all that, of course, uh, the Australians have been in there for a, a few years now. I mean, I don't know, could this gain any, <laughs> any traction? I, it's the kind of thing I wonder whether Donald Trump likes a big old event. Just you know, imagine, to... I mean, Eurovision Euro, Euro would be they would be so angry. If America tried to come over and just, I mean, we've put McDonald's everywhere. Now, let, let Europe have Eurovision, even if you know Azerbaijan wants to get involved. I think you keep the U.S. out of it. Uh, and Daniela, just to sort of return to the, you know, Israel's involvement. This has been, well, not politically charged Eurovision, but it has had its political uh, moments. Of course, it was in Kiev last year. The Russians didn't compete because they weren't allowed to go there, and so on and so forth. Um, is it okay to, for it to become? at least partly political in, in character, or should it stay theatrical and just concentrate on, you know, the shiny floor and the entertainment? Well, I think it has that theatrical uh, uh, element that, that dominates. But the, the politicisation, I think, gives it a slightly sexier edge, you know, like a fighter, a church disco. You know, that's that kind of... Uh, <laughs> Are there such things? Adds that, adds that, adds that cachet. But like uh, that other great uh, soft power uh, venture, sports... Uh, as we'll see with, with Moscow and so on, uh, politics is very, very much part of it. And it's usually dominated by people pretending rigorously that, no, it's all about the music, it's all about the art, it's all about the sport, where it's nothing of the kind. Uh, so who are we cheering for, Brian? I'll put you on the spot. Oh, God, I have no idea. You've got to endorse this, right? <laughs> the UK. Surely. I'm all oh, the UK. for the UK. It's, it's, it's so, so diplomatic. Daniela, who gets uh, your I'm, vote? I'm going to cheer for whoever gets uh, nil point. I think exactly. all the way through. Every, wherever you of, go in the world, everyone yeah. loves a loser, right? Exactly. The side <laughs> of the underdog. There we go. Uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. Daniela Fellard and Brian Class, thanks for being with us on Midori House. Today's programme was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who will be watching on Saturday. Uh, Research by Mariana Lagrasta, our studio manager, was David Stevens. My thanks to all of them. More music for you next at 1900 Hours. It's The Urbanist. And we'll have more on all of the day's main stories. And yes, more on Eurovision, live from Lisbon for you, uh, on the Monocle Daily from 2200. This show's back at the same time tomorrow. My name is Tom Edwards. Thank you very much for tuning in. (laughs) 